0: Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. My name is David McGuire. And I am Eric Brickmont. And I am Brian Moriarty. We're sorry to interrupt your podcast this evening, but we've come to you with a very important message. Are you tired of hearing the squeaking of our chairs? Are you tired of hearing a distant echo in the background? Are you tired of hearing my lips smack the moment before I talk? I know I am, but you know how we can fix that? We need help from you. You see, Rome was not built in a day. It was built over many months,
1: and also with lots of money. And lots of marble. We don't actually need the marble. No, we don't need it. It'd be nice, but... Okay, let's just stick to things that we actually need. Okay, sorry. Okay, thank Uh, you.
0: Anyways, if you feel like you want to help us with our squeaking chairs, or massive echo, and Brian's incessant lip-smacking, please go to www.nerdonomy.com. Click on Donate, where your money will go to helping our nerd cave thrive, and helping Brian get over his speech impediment. And to go to our need for lots and
1: lots of Hot Pockets. We must have the Hot Pockets. All right, well, here we are again on a, another adventure, getting ready to no, 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 Brian, 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 don't touch that, don't, don't, no! Oh my God, oh my God, Brian. Brian's dead. Hold on a minute, Eye of Harmony. We're gonna regenerate you, buddy. Hold on one second.
0: Oh, God, that hurts. Oh
1: God. <sighs> Brian, you you look so different.
0: Yeah, yeah, I do. And,
1: and you're
0: British. Well, yeah, you know, it's part of the regeneration process. You know, you, uh, you get to choose what you want to do. <laughs> Freedom of choice, et etc. Et oh, um,
1: man. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So I guess mm. my only question is. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah.
0: Ask anything you want. Remember, I know all about the universe. So um,
1: why the Mohawk? Oh, is it? no 1997? Well, not anymore. We just left that timeline. We're going back to our regular timeline to record. Oh, books. Welcome to Nerds on History. I am Eric Brickmont. And that deafening silence is the lack of Brian Moriarty. Yes, ladies and gentlemen... Uh, Our friend Brian Moriarty, thankfully, is not dead. Uh, He has not undergone a regeneration. He's actually perfectly fine. I believe he's actually sitting in his living room right now, uh, working on some homework. He is uh, very closely approaching the end of his schooling forever and ever and ever. And so uh, we're going to give him... Until grad school. (laughs) Until grad school, yes. We're going to give him uh, a few weeks off so that he can uh, do everything he needs to do. But thankfully, I am not alone. As you already heard... Uh, I am with my co-host from Nerds on Film, David McGuire. Hey, everybody. How are you? I think they're well. Good. I think they're well now that you're here. Good. Oh, yes. Good.
0: All right. Comfort has been brought to the group. Balance has been restored.
1: Yeah. I, I'm I'm very thankful that uh, you were able to come and join me this evening because I was kind of dreading the notion of of doing it by myself, as I'm sure our listeners would have been dreading as well. Uh, <laughs> I'm sure you guys like me just fine, but it would have been a little awkward, uh, me just talking into the mic. Although, you know, Brian did it once when I was sick, and it actually sounded really good. Yeah, I mean, he also did it in 14 minutes. Which is, (laughs) yeah, exactly. (laughs) It's funny how much back and forth we actually have going in the show, doesn't it? Oh,
0: yeah, absolutely. Yeah. No, I'm glad to uh, stop
1: by. I'm glad to uh, be a part, especially for today's episode. It's going to be great. Yeah, you know, and I want to thank you because listeners, like I said, there's going to be a few episodes where Brian is gone. Uh, next week, we're going to have Sarah from Nerds on Film as well, yay! and she'll be joining us for an episode. And then after that, we'll have the amazing Kevin Sartorius. Su Sue, Sue, Uh He will also be joining us, and then Brian should be back after that. So those two have already kind of tailor-made their topics to kind of what their interests were, and I kind of threw this one at you, and you just graciously said, let's do it. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, and I appreciate that. And it's not that it's a bad topic by any means. It's a pretty cool one, but I appreciate you kind of um, letting me just kind of throw this one out here and go along Oh yeah, along yeah. With it, I I so.
0: think of it as I
1: said before we started recording. You're Mr. Peabody and I'm
0: that kid <laughs> in
1: the Bullwinkle cartoons and uh, I will uh, I will learn. I promise I won't yell at you though or kind of treat you <laughs> Right. Because I really feel <laughs> like ill-will. I feel like that relationship was borderline abusive <laughs> right, right? <laughs> very much so it just did not seem like a child-friendly environment so <laughs> i promise i won't i won't suddenly just start belittling <laughs> you, <on> new. <laughs> yeah, <right>. at you. <laughs> <laughs> so before we jump into today's topic however uh has become kind of a tradition on nerds on history now uh we're gonna do some listener feedback and we always get some really awesome wonderful loyal fans who feel the need to go ahead and reach out to us and say hi and uh, we we appreciate that and we love to hear from you and your suggestions and topics so uh to begin it off with uh we have jonas and uh, he's from denmark from copenhagen 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 and and denmark and um he wanted to just kind of shout out to us and let us know uh that he who apparently belongs to something called the coalition of the norse have joined under our banner so of course uh, the norse being the, the people of uh, of Northern Europe. And uh, that is uh, that is fantastic. The uh, entire could... coalition that is of nerdonomy? Yeah, I'm pretty sure that means that we have Denmark and its entire armed forces at our disposal. This is amazing. Yeah, we may need to take over a small country and expand the nerd cave. Let's go. I'm looking at an <laughs> island in <of> Polynesia. <laughs> Somewhere nice, remote, excellent weather. Mm-hmm. Yeah. My guys. Okay. Hey, uh well, Jonas, We'll be calling upon you and your coalition to perhaps aid us in the future, so thank you for your your offer um <laughs> and I have to say he gave us some really great feedback and it was very constructive in the feedback he He says that you know we do a great job all the time, but when we talk about some of the more mainstream topics, it feels a little niche uh and that he really enjoys it when we move away from that territory and go into the more um unusual topics. And, uh, Jonas, I couldn't agree with you more. I I can't guarantee that every episode is going to be of the more unusual topics, but we do try to kind of come up with some things that are a little bit more unique. And I think that today's episode is kind of a merger of both ideas, maybe. I mean, yeah, that's that's, that's an accurate assumption. Because we're going to talk about some stuff that is not really, uh, oftentimes talked about or has a whole lot of notoriety within the subject. Mm -hmm. Uh, and so I feel like. I feel like we're gonna do that today i think jonas has got his wish answered. I, I believe so and if i'm saying your name wrong which i probably am please uh, correct me and let me know exactly how to say it and i shall i shall do so but thank you so much for your kind words and we appreciate you being part of our nerdonomy thank you so much and, jonas uh, yeah you're an awesome person a couple other real quick feedback to get to this one uh my bad on this one i just kind of have to say uh i know i you know it's kind of a good my bad because we've been getting so much fan mail that i actually overlooked this one back in the beginning of april uh and so i just wanted to come out and say uh uh, sorry which i already i already sent an email actually i felt so bad (laughs) i felt really bad i'm like i'm so sorry I, i didn't mean to ignore you but Bente from norway okay Again, apparently we're huge in, like, Scandinavian countries. I feel like
0: we're like the British invasion. Like, if we were to go to <laughs> England or any sort of European country, someone's going to look at us and be like,
1: Oh, you're it's not automate."
0: <laughs> or they're going to have, like, the, the glasses tattooed on their chest or, like, on their wrist. And we're just going to be like, Hey, look at that. A uh, or, or the worst, worst or best, we'll be in the public to at, like, a, a, a local airport. And someone's going to be like, Hey, you you're an aren't you can like, i
1: shake your hand afterwards <laughs> make sure there's plenty of purell <laughs> i don't know we're we're apparently pretty big we get a lot of fan mail there but hey i ain't complaining thank you norway Absolutely and Denmark. Not. thank you nor thank you europe yeah we, we love you all he just wanted to uh to give us a shout out and say again he, he enjoys our episodes and had a suggestion for polar expeditions and this is actually something i've been talking about with brian and I want to totally narrow this down and make this an awesome episode. I've been a mm-hmm. huge fan of the expeditions of, like Shackleton, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, even though I am myself terrified to death of boats, uh-huh. I still do find you know those expeditions interesting. Well, because you're in a safety of your own home, right, on land. Yes, you're not on somebody else' do it. Oh my god, I hate boats. so much. <laughs> I really do. It took me it took me twenty six years to to go to Alcatraz wow yeah because i love alcatraz i mean i love history right and i would love to go to alcatraz and when i was there it was fantastic it was the 15 minute boat ride that i was terrified of and i made my (laughs) wife and i stay there until like the last boat was ready to go because i didn't want to get back on it was such an awful experience i hate boats so much oh my gosh now i probably just like ostracized myself in the ears of all of our Northern (laughs) European listeners, but I'm sorry, I just I don't know what it is. It's an irrational fear. Either that or you just got yourself an offer to go on a boat and they're gonna help take that fear away from you. Yeah, I don't know if that's gonna happen. (laughs) Right. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Again, a bit off topic, but a great suggestion for a topic. It is something that we actually have on the docket and that we will be getting to. But that one I want to wait for Brian to get back to because he was uh, he wanted to be a part of that one. So, sure, sure. anywho, he's got some other suggestions. We'll we'll throw those out in a little bit. He just emailed me back today, so thank you again, uh, Betty Benti. And our last piece of listener feedback. This comes from David, who very much enjoyed our episode on cryptids, which you, sir, yes. were a part of. He had a real blast with it, and he was actually at Lake Ness. Uh, Loch Ness I should say not that long ago uh, and sent up some really hilarious pictures of him and I believe it's maybe his wife or girlfriend I'm not quite sure could be his sister I have no idea but they uh, just having some fun time on the the lake and, and very cool he actually showed us a wake of a boat that i think was kind of like what i was talking about in terms of like oh hey what's that emerging from the water oh you know? wow and you could totally kind of make it out right you could you could assume that maybe this was something that was surfacing kind of got a hump i know listeners you can't see what i'm describing but it's the lake oh yeah he made his own photo yeah exactly and then uh there's a fun one here look uh, nessie is real here's uh, i'm assuming the, the the woman that he was with encountering one of the statues at one of the local uh gift shops or towns or whatever and here he is being eaten by one of those statues so um david from atlanta thank you so much for sending those photos that's amazing yeah you you're an awesome guy thank you so much and we appreciate your uh your listening and wonderful name by the way yeah it's beautiful i wonder why you you're so fond of that (coughs) don't know yeah don't don't know. know if only they knew your real name jeremiah oh now the debt collectors are coming after me all right. <laughs> of course, that is that is that's not your real name. No, no, but, it's not. <laughs> I don't know why I said that. Uh, you know, I do have to say, uh-huh. David had a really awesome suggestion, and it totally got my mind working, and it kind of got the thing you know the creative juices flowing. And I thought this has got to be our next episode. I okay. can't avoid it. It's like ingrained in me. It's a part of me now. Now I got to do it. And he had suggested hearing more about you know, Stonehenge and other giant stone monolithic-esque constructions. And I thought, you know what, let's kind of talk about monoliths because they are extremely important. Right. And they're from around the world. And we can really do a lot with just that. But let's also talk about a few other really impressive stone structures and uh, maybe even a couple modern parallels or examples. And I thought, you know, hey, awesome idea. Let's start off with defining what is a monolith so monoliths in particular are neolithic period stone constructs that are usually without too much of a defined shape right so they they've been worked they've been created but they're not as uh as pristine in their shape as you find with perhaps later stone constructs and that's because of the limitation and the technology for carving them you're in the stone age still Right. So you haven't really developed metallurgy at this time. A lot of the uh, monoliths that we find come from in and around eight to 6,000 BCE, and a bit later than that, obviously. There are plenty of examples that continue all, all around and continue on later. But the really notable ones, like the really big constructs like Stonehenge and what have you, mm-hmm. those are around 3,000 BCE. They come a little bit later. So they get bigger and bigger and more impressive. Um, but they're, uh, they're not usually as finely worked as you find with examples like the pyramids of Egypt. Right. Okay. And you'll, you'll find that many of them had a religious or uh, sacred purpose. They were oftentimes associated with burials or cremation sites or also ancient uh, observatories. They were designed to really record the, uh, the rising and setting of the sun on the summer and winter solstices and also be used to, uh, in some cases lay out the position of particular stellar bodies that were just very very bright in the night sky hmm. and uh, you know there's a lot of really very notable examples of this like stonehenge
0: mm-hmm.
1: that one is stands out in everybody's mind right when you're kind of talking about this my visa card actually has stonehenge oh as, does it really uh, the background image oh yeah. that's funny i mean i remember as a kid having to make you know dioramas models and garbage like that because uh, <laughs> it was always just so time consuming you had to use sugar cubes and stuff it, yeah. just, it didn't make any sense why the hell am i doing those sugar cubes but, <laughs> but uh, you know you always did stonehenge because it was easy There was plenty of pictures of it it was easy to find and uh, tons of documentary films have been produced on the subject and books galore and all the different so-called neo-druic cults and their involvement there you always see it on the news right for every summer solstice there's always some article in the news about a bunch of people went to stonehenge and were dancing around and you know lighting <laughs> fires and things like that and people getting arrested and i'm a little over overstim- with stonehenge to be honest i mean we're going to talk about it a little bit but i don't really want to focus on it primarily okay kind of getting back to jonas's point you can go any other place and find out tons of information about stonehenge let's focus on some of the other really cool stuff that's not talked about very often Uh, I'm down. So let's do it. Okay, let's go. Let's go. I am probably going to say this wrong. Because I have absolutely no idea how to speak the Turkish language uh, or Kurdish or however this is derived from. I'm not exactly sure. But it is probably one of the oldest large Neolithic sites uh, in the world. And I believe it's called Gobekli Tepe. And I'm, I'm doing my best with this one. Uh, So I'm probably going to refer to it going forward as Potbelly Hill because that is the another name for the site. Okay. Uh, And this is an area in the Anatolia region of Turkey, right? So it's, it's kind of like in the, I want to say like south, south southeastern Turkey, right on the border of Syria. And there's a very large Kurdish population that's there. In fact, a Kurdish farmer was the one who really kind of stumbled across this discovery. And that was back in, uh, well, it's been known about for a while, but the real uh, hardcore excavation that was started in the in the site was back in 1964. So you say when they knew about it for a while, was it
0: that it was one of those landmarks that was originally there and spoken about in some sort of text, and then as time kind of progressed, it just kind of faded from existence?
1: Yeah, it was kind of known of by the inhabitants of a local area, right? But it wasn't really excavated. It wasn't really well known but it was a very uh, significant area. It was was known among the local communities there. Mm -hmm. And we've actually had a lot of work kind of done in the area, but some of the most significant work has really only been done recently from about 1994 on. And there have been some uh, archaeological excavations that kind of started with the initial survey of the area back in the 60s, and that was kind of a collaboration with Istanbul University and University of Chicago. Mm -hmm. Uh, University of Chicago has an amazing archaeological department that is just world renowned around the entire globe they have worked particularly in egypt the chicago house in egypt is kind of where they all kind of get stationed and a lot of different universities house a lot of expeditions out of that area but such an amazing amazing organization and they have a beautiful museum that they help to participate with in in chicago but um oh wow i was unaware of that oh yeah absolutely incredible they had helped out with that initial survey, but it wasn't until about 1994 when they really noticed the monolithic significance of the site. Mm-hmm. You know, they had seen it for what it was in earlier Byzantine period, but they didn't understand what it was in its very, very ancient form in the, in the Neolithic. And we're going back a pretty long way. You know, in archaeology, you always look at layers. And the further down you go, uh, the further back in history you go. Right. So we're talking in or around 9600 BCE is when that first real inhabitation of that area by Neolithic people was was going on. And it had a sacred connotation from the very beginning. It was a significant site for some sort of religious practices that were being performed, but we don't really know exactly what was going on. We know from the garbage that's been left around that there was a lot of cattle that was being slaughtered, and cattle... At that period in history, anywhere in the world was a luxury item. Animal husbandry, you know, the raising of animals for food, um, cultivating food, not really going on at that time. Hunter gathering was pretty much the staple of life. And these people still managed to to find, you know, wild cattle, kill them and bring them in and be able to uh, to use them to feast upon. And that shows some sort of real significance in the area, that they went through all that trouble to bring this valuable food source Mm -hmm. to this location. Uh, You know, there was definitely something going on. And more so than anything, though, is the discovery of these monolithic structures. So these large stone T-shaped slabs. So you'll have one kind of uh, worked piece of stone with another worked piece of stone placed on top of it that kind of hangs over the sides, right? So it emulates the shape of a huh And they were arranged in a circular fashion. Uh if you imagine Stonehenge, you kinda right, out what kind we're of write that kind of semicircle, about. yeah. Yeah, and at that site they have unearthed so far four of these circular constructions with monolithic stones uh making up the the circular portion of them. What's amazing is there's so much more. They believe there's between 16 and 20 additional Circle. stone circles. Oh my gosh. And it, that's that's huge. I mean, it's an enormous site. Yeah. The crazy. What's, the, what's like the the actual square footage? Does it say of how? So I believe they're approximately. You know, they're, they they vary, right? So they're anywhere from like ten to thirty meters in diameter. So, what is that? That's like um, anywhere from twenty to sixty feet, something like that. Wow. And there's or l- a little more than that, actually. Yeah. And there's speculating that there's a, another
0: an additional sixteen mm-hmm. sixteen to thirty extra circles. Yeah. That's, it, a, lot of, that's it's a lot of area. Yeah. Oh, I know.
1: Yeah, I mean, anywhere from... I, I think like estimates are between 16 and 20, right? So, I mean, that that is huge. That is an enormous area. And uh, the pillars themselves are absolutely fascinating for the time period because they have engraved on them images of animals. And you just don't see a lot of this in this time period. You see a lot of cave painting going on in the Neolithic, but you don't see a lot of very fine detail work with these beautiful engraved animals of all different types and it's been kind of speculated why do these exist because keep in mind we've only ever unearthed five percent of the total site so far so we don't have a whole lot of information to work off of so a lot of it is speculative
0: are they still working on it now or is it kind of in a they they are state of limbo
1: the reason why they haven't really gone further isn't entirely clear uh i believe very much that they're probably waiting for the technology to kind of catch up so that they can do a proper job to the site and maybe even not have to disturb most of it because once you start doing that, now I'll tell you why this particular site is so unique for being covered up in a minute, but once you start doing that, it disturbs evidence of that civilization that once inhabited it. If you can use something like ground penetrating radar, then you can start to get a clearer image. And if it gets really good in the future and we have some really detailed information they will get to a point where archaeologists won't have to dig in the ground anymore. They're going to. And a lot of people are like of two different mindsets. That's the perfect thing to do because, one, you don't want to disturb the site, especially if there's burials there. You want to be respectful to the people who are buried there. Right. Uh, and you don't want to unearth things if you don't have to because museums are overloaded with with stuff as it is. The other mindset is like, well this is ancient history we want to be able to preserve it and the only way we're going to be accurately able to preserve it is to take it out of the ground and put it somewhere safe like a museum right so build more museums or better facilities to house the stuff that you are accumulating and it eliminates the possibility of a natural disaster or some nasty people coming and blowing it up with dynamite oh yeah 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 yeah. oh god we'll talk about that later too (laughs) um So again, you know, a very unique site, very interesting, very old. You know, we're talking about the first development in this site going back at about 9,600 years. All those carbon dating suggests the actual construction of the the stone elements, right? The the pillars and what have you, maybe being a little bit closer to about 8,000 BCE, uh, as opposed to 9,600 BCE. Still, though. We're talking 5,000 years earlier than Stonehenge. Right. And this is wild. And do you hear about it? Do kids make little dioramas out of, you know, sugar cubes out of this? No. No, and it pisses me off. (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah, I mean,
0: it's, I'm fascinated to know that this was the first I've heard of this and that it's not brought up more frequently when in schools or anything of that sort. And it makes you wonder what, why is that not significant enough to want to be presented as something to be taught to the youth? Is it because we only know 5% and so it's all speculation and they feel like it's not enough information to actually be worth their time? Or is there
1: something else? I don't know. I mean, that's a good question because I remember growing up in school, Stonehenge was your introduction to kind of Neolithic societies. That's mm-hmm. that's how you heard about it. Although I grew up at a school here in America. And where is Stonehenge located? Right. To Britain. Yeah. So, you know, we share a common language. We share a common history. Is that the reason? I don't know. It, should it be the reason? No. No, absolutely not. Start teaching more about this. This is important, particularly when you're talking about these images uh, that are being engraved on these Oh, yeah. That is pillars. massively significant. It's crazy. Yeah. You, you, you just don't see that from this time period. And it freaking blows my mind. And yet people don't really give it the notoriety that it deserves. And that pisses me off. So people out there listening, loyal listeners, nerds, spread the word. Let people know that there are things beyond Stonehenge going on. And what- and for those of you that are in Europe, if this is something that was taught to you during your
0: schooling, please present that to us. We uh, would like to hear what the, you know, obviously we want to know what the difference is. And so if so, you know, if schools across the sea are um, presenting this knowledge and it's not being presented in America, I would love to hear the feedback on that.
1: Yeah, or our listeners from Turkey, you know, are you being taught this in school as opposed to Stonehenge? Perfect. Interesting kind of little experiment yeah. got everyone on the airwaves. I will say uh, I'll move on to another topic in a moment, but I do want to mention that the site is unique for other reasons, though, because even though at this point in history, the people of the area had not developed pottery, they had not developed metallurgy, right? So they didn't have any metal tools. They hadn't even had riding or a functional wheel yet. They were still able to construct this absolutely fascinating and extensive site and were transporting the the local stone from three, four hundred feet away. So they were quarrying something relatively nearby. But these are massive stones that right. you know
0: placing it on top of each other. Yeah. Not to mention the fact that they engraved and it's not just like they chilled away into it. It from the photos that I saw, it almost looks as though
1: the image protrudes out of the out of the base oh this is free rock this is this is them cutting the rock out of the rock face and bringing it and transporting it to a different location. so they're not using any of the local living rock in the area they are transporting it to that location that's incredible very impressive and then what really gets me though, which is so fascinating about this site and again it's difficult to say because it's still very early in its, uh, in its excavation, it was completely and totally intentionally filled up with debris. They hid it away, and they did it on purpose and they did it just about eight thousand years b c e so we're we're talking about them using the site for maybe about fifteen hundred years, very long time, preserving it, and then all of a sudden deciding they were going to cover it up and more or less kind of respect the site, if you will they had used it, they were done with it now, they were going to cover it up kind of like a A car that you drove for years and years, you're not ready to get rid of it, you love it, it's a classic, so you put a car cover on top of it just to kind of keep it safe. Uh, Maybe you know where it is, you kind of respect it in that regard, but you don't go see it all the time. Same kind of thing. And that corresponds within this area of the world, the development of agriculture. So they were giving up on hunting and gathering, and they were reprioritizing their society and turning it away from these older traditions of the older site that they had established, but they weren't ready to kind of let go of it completely. So they covered it up and respected the site. And maybe that's part of the reason why also they don't want to completely uncover it. Because it was the decision of these people in, in you know ancient times to do that exactly. It wasn't like the natural elements were coming in and covering it up. Right. They It was their yeah. decision. That's why I can
0: never be an archaeologist. Because those types of decisions, I'm always going to want to dive deep. Because I'm going to want to see
1: what else they had. Yeah. When I was working at the museum, I, had, I ran into that conflict many times, and a lot of people came on in and said, you know, hey, how can you remove all this stuff and take it out of Egypt? Well, I said, well, hey, I didn't do it. I just worked <laughs> here. You're like, first off. <laughs> you lower your, your defense shield right now, all right? Because I had no part of that. Yeah, I, I didn't go and do that. I'm just here to teach you about what it is. But, you know, it is a it is a interesting, and it's a valid argument, and it's one that needs to be had. And I don't think there's a, a clear... Right or wrong answer at this point, so yeah, it is interesting though. And you know, what's so fascinating, and what I'm hoping that they develop much better ground penetrating radar and other techniques for observing below mm-hmm. the strata is that they threw all this stuff in there intentionally, so they preserve the site, so there's so much there that's just like it was when it was laid there 10,000 years ago, 8,000 BCE. Holy crap! You don't find that in archaeology very often. You really don't. Talk about a time machine. Yeah, exact Or time capsule, right? Right. Just like capsule. a time capsule. Yeah yeah, 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 exactly. It is a time oh, capsule. Dude, that blows my mind. Mm. More to come, ladies and gentlemen. Now, I wouldn't be Eric Brickmont if I didn't tie it in into Egypt somehow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, listeners, if you're playing the home game, you just scored yourself some points there. Um, <laughs> that was a very I, ambiguous clue eric (laughs) wasn't it (laughs) um what i will say is that i'm not going to focus too much on egypt and its classic history i do actually want to focus on egypt in its neolithic history and i'll I'll say this what's the first image that comes to your mind when you think about egypt as a country as a whole oh uh clearly the pyramids okay and the sphinx how about environmentally (sighs) environmentally
0: sand Mm-hmm. Very little vegetation. Yeah. Uh, uh, at least
1: visibly seen out in the desert. Sure. Uh, and most notably the Nile. Absolutely. And where do you find a vegetation most often? It's, of course, by gonna the be river. It. By the river, exactly. Uh, but 130,000, 70,000 years ago, between that time, Egypt was a very, very different place. Mm. Uh, the Nile was much larger. It was what was known as the Proto-Nile. And it was a, a much larger source of water that came inland into uh, mainland Africa And the whole area itself was much, much more wet. And this is where we find some of our earliest ancestors, Homo sapiens, hanging out and developing hunter-gatherer societies and living there for a really, really long time. So that to the point where, you know, much later on in the 10th millennia BCE, while the environment had now dramatically changed and was starting to become much, much more dry and hot... There were still a lot of these remnants of what was left over from that time period. And you found that there were larger lakes at the time, and there were larger oasis and what have you. And in one particular area, the Nabata Playa, you had a Neolithic group of people down near the very end of Egypt's extent and its modern border. So it's right on the border of Sudan and Egypt. Okay. Uh, in the Nubian Desert, and it's about 800 kilometers south of Cairo and about 100 kilometers west of Abu Simbel, which is on the river. Okay. So that kind of helps people figure out where this is. And it is, if you look at a picture of it, it looks a whole lot like Stonehenge. So they're a stone that was moved intentionally from the the neighboring area. Uh, In this case, it was around a a lake bit at the time. And they brought it together. And what makes it a little bit more unique is it's not just a stone structure in, in a circular form there's also these monoliths that are placed on the inside here yeah it's almost like a um nearly an oval shape
0: uh, there seems to be some some mild point at the end of that picture that you just showed
1: it's a little bit oblong right, uh, if yeah. you kind of look at it from more like a top-down perspective you can see it is a little bit yeah. more circular in its structure uh and it has With its specific six stones on the inside yeah now that's what's really interesting Because we are talking about a time even before the monolithic sites in Turkey uh, by a couple thousand years, and we're already seeing indications of the very first observatory in history, in a sense. Mm -hmm. Maybe more like a planetarium, truly more like a calendar, because what it was was an alignment that was very specific to the summer solstice. And this is something we do see later on at Stonehenge, but we don't see it this early on normally. And it's very, very fascinating because they took it to a whole nother level. Not only was there an indicating stone for the rising of the sun on the summer solstice, the longest day of the year, but there was also these marker stones on the inside, which you know astrophysicists have done research into and have concluded that they actually are markers for very bright stars uh, in the night sky, in particular Sirius, Arcturus, Alpha Centauri, and quite possibly what is believed to be the belt of Orion. No kitten. Wow. Yeah, and this is not one of those crack documentaries that you sometimes see on TV where they claim that aliens built the pyramids and garbage like that, or you know that uh, ancient man had a, a celestial star chart that pointed them to some other universe. God, I don't know. You, you, know, you hear this kind of garbage on, right. on TV. This is a real example of ancient man observing their environment, and laying out a very sophisticated marking system for the heavens above them, and it's something that you don't really see until much, much, much later, uh, and it totally and completely blows my mind. Well, they were very—I mean, they were a
0: very sophisticated group of people. I mean, to have the ingenuity to create not just the pyramids, but the devices that help them raise the blocks to create the pyramids. Yeah, the way that their agriculture was created in the way they figured out how to create irrigation channels based off of the way the water was flowing, have that flow in and oh, yeah. hit what they were planning. I mean, they, they were an incredibly intelligent group of people. And why not have them look up at the sky and say, oh, that looks
1: like something we should mark or something we should have physically on the ground with us. And, and not so much to make a correction, but actually to kind of amplify the point that you're making. Mm-hmm. What you're talking about in terms of development of pyramids and irrigation canals and nilometers and all the other cool stuff that they had, mm-hmm. we're talking about classic Egypt, first starting experimenting with that at around 3000 BCE. These guys, these guys started way before that. And we're talking about the inhabitation of this particular area okay. at around 10,000 BCE. We're talking about some of the first developments of the actual site in around 8,000 BCE. And then you find the actual marking stones and things of that nature anywhere between six and four thousand BCE. So they're still way outpacing classical Egypt, and it just blows my mind. It's cool.
0: No, it's 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 it <laughs> is so awe inspiring because I think in this day and age, right, where technology has rapidly advanced, we find ourselves, man finds itself, society finds itself now having this idea that you know we have everything at our fingertips, right? the iPads, Mm -hmm. the phones, that we can develop anything we ever wanted and we can have everything just so readily available. And for someone and for for a group of people who had literally nothing to be able to have that type of ingenuity and that type of mental thinking of being able to put celestial, you know, markings onto the ground that correlates with what's going up in the sky and not having any real concept of what space or what those what those lights were up in the sky is just beyond amazing
1: yeah you know ancient man didn't need help to do this from aliens it wasn't some way of signaling aliens they were just very observant of the environment around them because they didn't have all the distractions that we have today right you know they weren't they weren't distracted by kim kardashian uh doing god knows what or what is it now it's the teen moms or the new you know train wreck of society in the united states (laughs) Yeah, showing the rest of the world just how <laughs> how sophisticated we all are. Um, they built the iPhone and they have a show called 16 and Pregnant." Yeah. So <laughs> now the, the stars of are going out and getting arrested for heroin and making sex tapes. Huzzah! Well, that's how you get ahead in this world, man. Oh no, that's so depressing. I know, right? It <laughs> makes you long for a Neolithic society. I know. <laughs> we just let's go back to the beginning, guys. Yeah, let's just let's just dial it back a little bit. <laughs> Oh, that might need to be the title of the show. Dial it back a little bit. Let's dial it back a little bit. Oh, I like that. Yeah, good one. Um, So I I, I won't spend too much more time on this. I do want to mention, just again, to put it into perspective, we're talking about the inhabitation of this particular site in Egypt uh, at the Nabata Plata at around 10,000 to 8,000 BCE, kind of inhabiting and and finding significance to the site. That expanding forward at about 6,000 to about 4,000 BCE with the, the first real construction and development in the site. And then these astronomical constructions being done in around, you know, 4,000 to 3,000 B.C. And around in in, in those times, 3,600 is more likely. Uh, So we're talking about something very, very impressive. And, you know, what a big surprise then that these type of people would eventually influence their their later descendants in classical Egypt.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: You know, a perfect example that I can think of is the obelisk. We've talked a lot about pyramids. We had a whole episode. That was our first episode. Right. Uh, But the obelisks of Egypt are these beautiful and elegant constructions carved oftentimes out of granite, which is a very, very hard stone to work with. And uh, many of them are extremely tall. Uh, One of the earliest examples of a a true obelisk, right? So not one of these proto-obelisks that we find from, like, the Old Kingdom that were very large and kind of fat and stocky in their construction, but very very massive in their scale mm-hmm. you have these more slender kind of typical obelisks that are being created and i believe senus ret the first was the one who was known for creating the the real first in a sense what's called a true obelisk uh, in the 12th dynasty and that one was you know 68 feet tall they keep building them bigger uh over 100 feet at one point uh you know and they were these massive very impressive constructs uh who i can just look at the mindset of these People who came before and see them, you know, influencing this kind of design and taking those chances and doing something that seems impossible and making it possible. And I also see again the very observant nature of ancient man maybe being influenced to develop something like this based on the environment around them. And one of my favorite theories about obelisks is that they were influenced by a natural phenomenon. Have you ever heard of a light pillar? Uh, that was no. called solar pillars or moon pillars. They have a couple different names. I've not no. So it's an optical phenomenon, and I'm going to show David a couple of pictures of these. I encourage you, if you're near a computer or a mobile device or whatever, to just do a quick uh, web search for sun pillar, and you're going to find these uh, these oh, wow. interesting formations. And uh, here's a picture of one from San Francisco, right in our own backyard. And essentially what it is is ice crystals that are kind of locked in the upper atmosphere. So even in a really hot place like Egypt, believe it or not, they have ice crystals, right? Okay. The atmosphere goes up a long <laughs> way, people. Um And the way that the sun refracts the light within those crystals. Like, have you ever seen like a halo effect around a moon? Yeah. Like a full moon? It's a, it's a similar phenomenon. I see. Uh, but it creates this really long cylindrical kind of uh shape. Okay. Right? In the sky. And it looks like just a, a long pillar of light. No surprise they call them sun pillars. But this could very well have been an influence to the ancient Egyptians who would have witnessed these and thought, oh, well, that's rather nice. Let's just you know make that out of stone. <laughs> I just like looking at it all day. <laughs> okay, we'll just, we'll just build one. And we're going to put a little chair over here. <laughs> and you can just sit here and you can look at it all day. How does that sound, Pharaoh? That sounds great. <laughs> let's do it, guys. It really does, let's, guys. Just, <laughs> let's do it. But, you know, these obelisks were always associated with solar deities. Whether they be the prominent solar deity of the time, like whether it be Ra or the Aten, depending on the time period, they were always associated with the sun. And how do you associate a long cylinder-like, not cylinder because it's not rounded, but a long pillar like that with the sun? That's a pretty good explanation. It yeah, makes sense. I'll buy it. It's one of my favorites and even though we're kind of jumping around a little bit and kind of jumping more into the classic period, I wanted to mention it. <laughs> how do you feel about Stonehenge? Do you want to... Do we really need to talk about it? Well, here's the thing.
0: I know of its existence. Um, I know of what it represents as far as the solstice is concerned. Mm-hmm. I am in awe of the fact that they were able to get slabs of massive rock to, A, not only stand up in an erect fashion and not fall down, but also stack one on top of two of them to create that door effect. Yeah. But that's, I mean, my knowledge is pretty basic. I mean, okay, Nothing so, deeper,
1: nothing more. Stonehenge is an interesting, very interesting site. Very significant. I'm not going to downplay its importance because it is very, very important. I, I just feel like it's been done. Oh, yeah, no, absolutely. To death. I mean, when Capital One puts it on the back of a credit card, you know you've reached your peak. <laughs> exactly, right? <laughs> so uh, what I do want to, however, mention, uh, we'll talk about it a little bit, but what I really want to mention is... Not what you might expect. In fact, there's something to me even more interesting than the actual site itself, and that's currently located in the parking lot for the visitors at Stonehenge. It's really interesting. If you go to the parking lot in Stonehenge, and I'm talking like I've been there. I haven't, but I'm familiar with the site. There are these large white dots that you might assume are like some sort of marking for like where the sewer is, so don't don't go there or what have you. You're going to hit a sewage line. Right. What they actually are are the indicators that there was and what they are covering over, which are these large uh, holes, these post holes, that were dug out about 8,000 BCE, so about 10,000 years ago in the site, which indicates some of the earliest significance to this particular site for being a religious, uh, of religious significance. And uh, they held these posts that were probably about two and a half feet in diameter, so they were pretty significant you know they were essentially like tree trunks in fact some people speculate that they that's exactly what they were they were just kind of worked down tree trunks and they would uh and they would put them in the hole and that would be their their religious significant uh, markers in fact there was a lot of timber construction going on before there was ever stone structures erected at stonehenge there was a time when the whole circular structure itself was more or less made out of wood Uh, and it didn't possess these really large megalithic structures in the center kind of like we have now But when you look at Stonehenge, you're only really seeing what's stuck in the middle. The exterior of Stonehenge, uh, the exterior circles around it are much more extensive. And when you look at a picture of Stonehenge in a kind of recreated form, which again, if you go to like, just type in in a webpage, recreated uh, Stonehenge image or something to that effect, you'll see Stonehenge as we kind of know it and love it in the middle, more or less. And then you'll find all these different post holes all around it, places where they would have put, you know, wooden pillars. And then you have like a a ditch that would have been dug around it as well. It's funny. It almost kind of had this
0: recreation that they, you know, they're speculating almost kind of has a Romanesque government or council kind of feel to it. A little bit, doesn't it? In the way that, you know, you have the specific stones in the center, you have these posts That are kind of around it. Um, I mean, my only real kind of connection to that is um, there's a TV series called Rome that Uh they did for two seasons on HBO. And uh, it's a very obviously it takes place during Julius Caesar's reign. And so they it's highly political. And so there's a lot of scenes inside where they are debating and, and, and talking about what they want to do and how they're going to do it and what Caesar wants, et and it And it's very reminiscent of that, where it's this large area where you can almost imagine that whoever was around in that area would either go for it for a religious ceremony, or they would go for it to debate about what to do next with their culture, or what to do next with their group, and, and yeah. so on, and debate the, the great debates of, of that time.
1: And, you know, that's a really good point, is when you're building with stone, you're really building to impress. Right. And any religious site is obviously going to be somewhere where you want to be impressive, uh, and so building a stone is the perfect way to do that. Whether it's a, you know, political building in later more classical times, or whether it's a monolithic construction during, you know, uh, you know, Stone Age times it is uh it gets the point across no matter what you go to washington dc you know you get the same exact effect right right (laughs) it's not like the uh the washington monuments can be made out of like toothpicks exactly (laughs) we mean mild business guys now go about your day we cut down 14 forests to build this beautiful obelisk (laughs) entirely out of toothpicks (laughs) now if that's any impressive i don't know what uh (laughs) my choice is build it out of stone shut up (laughs) We had our reasons. But you know Stonehenge, oh gosh, there's so much to talk about. We could dedicate a whole episode to it. And I don't want to because I know other history podcasts have done this and there's so many TV shows out there. So I encourage you to go read and uh, experience a lot of the other uh, other information about Stonehenge. I know National Geographic put out a pretty good one that you can get on Netflix right now called Decoding Stonehenge. And that was back in 2008. Most of the information is still very, very relevant. And it's a good one if you just kind of want to sit down and absorb it on the boob tube. And there's a wide variety of different great tele- or great uh, books written on the subject.
0: Okay.
1: Um, but again, you know, I, I, I kind of want to move away from it for a little while because when you're thinking about megaliths, right? So these super large stone constructs, they are not unique to Stonehenge. They are all over the world. And uh, many of them are right there in England and other parts of Europe And some of them are very simple. So most of them are constructed out of, uh, or for the reason of creating tombs. Uh, So a portal tomb, for example, is a very typical construction. And And I want to talk about this because you talked a little bit about how impressed you were with the actual construction of things like Stonehenge. Right. So let's talk about how they actually moved it around for a minute. Because these structures were very, very large in size and very, very heavy, how do you go ahead and successfully move something like that? So in the particular part of this portal tomb, you uh, essentially dig a ditch in the ground deep enough to support the structure that you want to put in it, but still uh, allow you to achieve the height that you want. Right. And then you, in a team of uh, many, many individuals using straps and, and what have you, you haul this massive stone from wherever it is you quarried it, usually many, many miles away from the actual site, or at least in the case of Stonehenge, many miles. In other cases, it was just around the corner regardless it's a big object and it's having to move right lots of theory has been suggested about how they moved these rollers makes a lot of sense you know they knew how to cut down wood they knew how to make it into a cylinder they knew how to make it as a roller right not that tough yeah you, you put enough of them on there even when you have you know a 60 or 70 ton object you're distributing the weight evenly across them you can just push it across with these especially with a lot of people yeah exactly and if you do it at the right time of year, when the ground is not too hot, not too soft, it's just right, you know, Goldilocks effect, you can do it. Uh, so you you pull these these stones close to the ditch, and you pull them right into the ditch. It ain't that hard to do. I mean, it's hard, but it's not that difficult to plan it out. To con- Yeah, conceptualize, yeah. Yeah, so you, you, you put them in the ditch, you do the same thing to the other slab on the other side, and then you take, you know, material like dirt and uh, limestone chips and other you know, stone byproduct that's being produced when you're cutting out these large pieces of stone. And you essentially make yourself a kind of proto-concrete temporary ramp that's supported by the side of the stone that you're building on. And then you haul the other big piece that you want to move across at the top up that ramp on one side, and you kind of bring it over and bridge it onto the other. Interesting it 's not that difficult to to like you said conceptualize right, so right. you can you can envision this, and then what do you do in the case of these portal tombs? Well, you just keep covering it up with stuff you know you make these mounds that are used to uh, to represent the tombs, and we talked about this in our first episode at great length there's this ongoing joke between Brian and I about the multitude of the times that I said mounds. If you know, if we had a dollar for every time we said mounds, we would have a brand new computer and we would have a whole lot of other things <laughs> we need. Um But it's true, these these mound shapes were in part also due to the, the type of construction that was going on. Hmm. And I'm sure they used a system of uh levers and other uh, you know, filler to move it up slowly, up, 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 up and on to it. There's been so much experimental archaeology done on the subject of how they moved them. Uh it's becoming less and less mysterious and more just continually impressive interesting isn't it though
0: well yeah because i mean to make the tombs so if you think about it if they use that same way to make Stonehenge, right it's also kind of interesting to think that they would build this mound on top of the original floor so to speak or we'll say the original earth so that way they can get the the rocks to or the slabs to fit exactly right and yeah, then, then they had to clean it, it all up and then they had to
1: clean it all up Did oh the... man that job must have sucked oh man You don't get the the prestige of being the guy who's strong enough to haul the thing. You're the guy that has to clean up the cement to make (laughs) sure. It sucks. You know, then you got the guy who's really smart who planned out the whole thing. Everybody loves him. No doubt. You know, it's it's people are are doing it.
0: I'm a mop-up crew. Get out. You don't get a drink. Yeah, you're not cool. (laughs) (laughs) You're just a commoner, all right?
1: So just take your little, you know, mop and broom. Still, though, to be there. Yeah. Yeah. It's so funny, though, because, you know, obviously, ancient man knew what they were doing was important to the reasons that they were doing it, but they didn't understand the context that we would put it in today. Yeah. They didn't understand just how important it was. Now I bet that guy who was cleaning up all the crap afterwards would have been like, Oh man, I was there. Right. I finally am cool in somebody's eyes. Well, that's what's, that's
0: what's so great about history and not to, you know, get old Saturday after school special on you, but you know, what's so great about it is that you think about these things, like when Shakespeare wrote these plays and when he created the ideas or, when someone created Stonehenge or the, the pyramids or the Sphinx, you know, in their mind, they were doing it for one purpose, either to idolize a god or to just write or to, you know, build a tomb for the pharaoh. And they had no concept that thousands of years later, other men who had evolved and become a little bit more aware of what was going on would find these and idolize it as this amazing architecture. Yeah. Or these great works, and to them, they're just like, oh yeah, I was just doing, you know, someone needed a place to, you know, die, and so I just built them a little tomb, no big <laughs> deal. And to us, we're just like, you guys built that with like straps and wood, like that's
1: amazing. We couldn't do the kind of work that they did back then with our modern technology. Oh no, absolutely not. I mean, we could, but it would have been a, it would have been so full of things like our skyscrapers red tape. would be just like so disjointed and discombobulated. Yes, like, <laughs> I mean. I, You know, it's so funny when you go back to basics, you really have to just use basic tools. If you try to use more advanced technology, going back to basics, it used run into more problems. It's just funny. Yeah, right. (laughs) Uh, So let's jump forward a bit. We've talked a lot about BCE, right? But there was a whole lot of stuff going on in the CE during the Common Era. Gotcha. And so one of the most misunderstood yet totally fascinating constructs, again, a little bit uh, well-known like Stonehenge, but way more misinterpreted, are the Moai. Are you familiar at all with the Moai? Yeah, the faces. Ah, there's your misconception. I'm so happy you said that. I'm sorry. Yay! (laughs) I unintentionally did something. (laughs) Not to be a jerk or anything, but (laughs) thank
0: you for being stupid. (laughs) (laughs) Which is not what he was saying. I'm just making the joke.
1: Um, So they are not faces. No, I mean, they, they have faces. Right. But they are not the Easter Island... I'm doing air quotes right now. listeners. heads. That's how you always hear them described as the Easter Island heads. Uh, And again, to to put this in perspective into where we are in the world, we're off the coast of Chile, South America, an island called Easter Island, not where they celebrate Easter. This is not where the Easter bunny is from. Just saying. Shucks. I I know. I had to ruin your dreams for a minute. I know. If I didn't, then the whole rest of the segment would make no sense. (laughs) Oh man! I'm sorry, listeners. If you thought the Easter Bunny lived on Easter Island, if that's where he paints his eggs, uh, yeah, that's just that's sorry. that's disappointing. Yeah, I know. Anyhow, five of the listeners are just as sad as I am right now. <laughs> <laughs> so these these moai, though, many of them, once cameras had been invented and actually brought to the island, had long since been toppled over due to you know conflicts and civil wars on the island. And so what you saw were a bunch of the more or less unfinished Moai who were right near the quarry where they were being, uh, where the stone was being extracted from. Uh, And this is in a place called Ranu Raraku. Uh And this is a a hillside, a gently sloping hillside where, for whatever reason, a lot of these unfinished ones were actually dug into ditches and placed in the earth. And so they're up to like around their shoulders. Mm Mm-hmm. So the actual statue continues down further into the ground, but you can't see it. So when people were first taking pictures of some of the only, quote-unquote, upright statues on the island, they were taking pictures from the shoulder up. And so people had assumed, once they brought it back, that they were just heads, that they all looked like that, and that's where the misnomer gets attached to. Interesting. Yeah. In reality, the Moai are full-body statues, Uh, they have a torso, they have arms, they have hands. Uh, you don't really see feet terribly often. So they kind of more or less cut off at like where the knee would be, except for there's one Moai that has been found uh, in a kneeling pose. And then in that case, you can see feet behind the statue, but there were a lot of them. There's been about 887 of them found so far, and they have made quite a few efforts to actually bring them back to life, if you will. So take them Rebuild them onto uh, the the little stands that they sit on, and you know they're all facing towards the the ocean, uh, and they sit on uh, what are called ahu, where are these these little um, kind of like a little pedestal, if you will, a really long one, and they all kind of stand next to each other. Hmm. And they were meant to represent very very important people on the island. Ancestor worship is really what was going on here, but on a really large megalithic scale, right? So there are these right. huge stone. Constructs free from the rock, transported again, large distances. Well, su- not super large distances. We were talking about a relatively small island, but uh, still very, very impressive because most of them are around 50 oh, tons, gosh. it looks yeah, like. 50 to 80 tons. I think that the largest one was 33 feet high and 82 tons. Wow. Uh, and they're they're really impressive and they're very beautiful and we they're see gorgeous. them yeah well we see them now in a really dilapidated state uh, when they were finished originally and there's been some efforts to reconstruct them kind of as they originally looked uh, they had these beautiful eyes that were placed in because if you look at the eyes you can see that they're inlaid
0: right they're sunken they're sunken in ready for some sort of other something to be laid on top of
1: it yeah so they constructed these massive eyes using coral which was uh, a white colored material available to them and then in the center to create the pupils oftentimes they used obsidian and they made these really kind of impressive pictures if you look uh and do a re-erected moai search so search for that in google re-erected moai then you will see what they they looked like when they were completed and david i'll show you a picture of one uh, and so you can see how striking the eyes are now the way that they kind of stand out oh wow and they kind of look like they were they've got this little like um hat Yeah, like a little Russian uh, winter cap Yeah, (laughs) they're wearing on their heads. Uh, And these are the the pukau. And the pukau are almost always made out of volcanic rock, uh, like a red scoria. And it was just really, again, striking within the contrast of the rest of the statue. Uh, Super, super cool. Most of these were constructed in a time period between about 1250 and 1500 C.E., uh, they were constructed by the Polynesian tribe that lived on this island, who had to travel great distances uh, in order to get to this island. But we all know that the Polynesians were, were experts at uh, long-distance travel over, over the ocean. Really very impressive. Check them out online. I, I know the BBC put out a really great documentary not that long ago. Uh, I'm sure you could probably find it online. I think it actually airs on YouTube. You can You can watch it on there. And uh, to construct these beautiful statues, you know, all they had available to them was stone tools. And yet they made these fantastically intricate-looking statues. Right, And that's what most of these people who were constructing the monuments we've talked about today had, were stone tools. And stone actually works really good on statues. Stone on stone uh, produces some really uh, incredible results. Yeah. So don't underestimate the power of stone. Stone is good stuff. Interesting here that... um... That there seems to be a
0: speculation that the Moai represent essential signs of leprosy in reversed, overcorrected form.
1: You know, I read that, too, and I thought that was really interesting.
0: It's an interesting hypothesis. According to this hypothesis, the, the existential shock ensued when viewing uh, each deformations of those body parts most important in social interaction, face, hand, fingers, arms. Uh, may have provided the impetus to ritually undo such bodily ravages by carving
1: unblemished moai. And I think you're quoting uh, Dr. Annalise Ponteus, if yes. I'm looking at the same information that you are. Mm-hmm. Uh, y- you know, I read that, and it, it's very interesting. It's because, interesting theory, yeah. Well, leprosy among the polynesians have has always been considered you know the sign of being you know unclean and, and mm-hmm. you know we see that in lots of other examples right so you see it in the bible with you know jesus talking about you know going over and touching leopards and stuff like that mm-hmm. um not leopards which is what i read being that i'm dyslexic when and i thought that was so cool he went around touching leopards this is awesome and then i realized it was lepers, and i was just so disappointed um yeah i like my version better yeah <laughs> But you're quite right in that, you know, the, the parts of the body that are oftentimes affected by leprosy that cause the need for amputating deformed limbs uh, is that deformation of the, of the face, hands, fingers, and arms. And that's exactly what all of these Moai have in a much more emphasized fashion. And when we're talking about, you know, ancestor worship, we're also talking about perceptions of the afterlife and the continuation of life-altering effects into the afterlife, and so maybe this is a way of guaranteeing that these people of importance would never be casted down in society and, and be seen as lepers. Yeah, very very cool. Thank you for bringing that up. That's a that is a really interesting theory about them. And who knows a hundred percent, but it, it is pretty fascinating. Uh, and if you look at a map of Easter Island, you can see the moai are all over the place. That their original places where they were uh, erected are all mostly, I should say, not all, mostly on the exterior of the island near the coast. And they were all designed to kind of look out onto the water, which is a highly uh, significant religious practice, whatever it was that originally influenced it. I don't know. I don't know if anyone knows. But a very, very uh, significant, sacred, intentional action there. Right. Uh, And, you know, not too far away, you also have something similar going on. And in this case, we're actually talking about heads. These are real heads. Ain't yes. no doubt. Ain't no body under these guys. We're talking about the heads that the Almec created, uh, in this case over in Central America, in the mm-hmm. heartland of southwestern Mexico. So putting that in the context of the, of the time period, right? So we're looking at around 1500 to 400 BC. Mm-hmm. And the Almec fascinate me. Perhaps more so than just about any other civilization in Mesoamerica. I know I just said that, but I, it's, it just blows my mind. And when I was in Mexico City uh, visiting some family, I had an opportunity to visit the Museum of Anthropology. And I spent the entire day there. And I only made it through about, I don't know, 30 or 40% of the actual exhibit. I mean, it, it is a massive place. And the Olmec exhibit was so captivating to me. And they actually have two of these colossal Ulmec heads. And they just blow your mind in terms of the scale. These guys are huge. Some of them are actually as much as, you know, around 50 tons. They're really, really big. And they are uh, impressive in the fact that they actually had to transport them from the area that they were quarrying them, mm-hmm. which was like 80 miles away through the jungle. It's nuts, man. It's totally nuts.
0: That's, it, it's in, almost inconceivable to think how you could transport 80 tons by itself is a task through a heavily
1: forested area even more impressive yeah and you know um a lot of people say that they they probably waited for very particular times in the year where they could take advantage of the rivers and have them wide enough that they could build a barge large enough to support a structure that large some people say i don't think so that sounds kind of crazy i don't know if it would ever work it would probably just sink right away other people think, yeah, it makes most sense on how they're going to get it around. But we do know that they also had a lot of other constructions going on besides this, including pyramids uh, and, and other things, you know, like roads and, that, and things of that nature. And so I think that building out, you know, things like causeways and other artificial constructions to help in their transportation and movement also makes a lot of sense, in addition to probably using some sort of river travel, because you know, the people of Mesoamerica were very skilled on the river. That's one of the ways that they were able to get around quickly and uh, these heads are believed to represent the uh, the, the rulers of the Olmec they uh, their kings mm-hmm. and many times they are grouped together in certain locations within the Olmec uh, heartland there's about four of these locations where there's a large large concentration of them uh, I believe there's about 17 that have been discovered thus far and they uh, they, are kind of grouped together in what we think are more kind of like dynasties, if you will, and perhaps they represent family groupings of the Olmec leaders. Even though the Olmec were the first of the Mesoamericans to develop a written language and pottery and many other advances of the time, we don't see any written record that 100 percent explains who these people are we don't have names for example en- engraved on them like you would in egypt with obelisks that had the pharaoh's cartouche you know engraved right in. right 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 right. we don't see the same practice with the all so again this is kind of guessing but based on their faces being very round and kind of fleshy and meaty they probably were representing people who had you know more than enough to eat yeah who were the rich people obviously yeah I'm- and they had massive uh, headdresses engraved onto the heads themselves, and those usually denote some form of importance. And let's not forget the the technological, economic, and organizational feat that went into creating all, all of these. You're not going to just have some random Joe Schmo, you know, who, who's going to have one of these made up, right? <laughs> just see, like, in just the back of his hut. And so what
0: is that? Oh, this is something I'm working on. You know? <laughs> thought I'd just uh, give it a shot, see if people like it or not. Like,
1: you know, what do you guys think? I don't know, Joe. It
0: looks, uh, looks a little weird. <laughs> people are talking. <laughs> people want you to go to the middle of town, and uh, we're just going to have to... You're the next sacrifice. We're sorry. Damn.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Try to do something new, something cool. End up getting sacrificed on an altar. What I will say, though, is that these guys are, are extremely impressive, and we haven't really known much about them uh, up until just about 80 years ago with uh, Matthew Sterling and the work that he did starting in 1938 uh, to bring these to life. And well, what's so uh,
0: fascinating it, with everything we've talked about tonight is that somebody in that group came up with this concept of wanting to do this, whether it be the ob- the, um, the obelisk or whether it be the, the heads of, of Olmec, um, it's just this this concept came into their head, and whatever drove their uh, their need and want to, to be able to construct this project, that's never going to be really unearthed. That's always going to be kind of lost in history, but. Um, just the fact that this idea even struck a chord with them and resonated so much that they wanted to continue and actually pursue and see through, especially with the Easter Island, uh, Mauai. M- 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 I'm sorry, am I pronouncing that correctly? The Moy. M- the Moy. Moya. I mean, it's just, it's just so fascinating that you know they would be willing to go through all of these different things. You know, like with especially with the Olmec heads, right? 80 miles away was the quarry in which held the stone that they had to use. So, suffice it to say it probably was, or at least the, the best guess is that whoever had the concept to be able to construct these heads also thought how am I going to get it back here? Oh, let's construct a road that we can use as our pathway from point A to point
1: B. Yeah, all, all temporary constructions all built just to achieve this. And that's the thing that a lot of people always forget about. You know, when we talk about like the Great Pyramid for example, when they were constructing that, it's believed that they most likely used a large, a very large, massive earthen ramp kind of like how they moved around a lot of the megaliths. Mm -hmm. Um, But this is something that like wrapped around the side of the pyramid, you know, going up hundreds of feet, a huge project. It was probably on scale with the actual pyramid building itself. Yeah. And a lot of people forget about that because they only see what's the finished monument, right? That's what sticks around in their mind. There
0: was probably two teams working. One team was the the pyramid team and the other team was the ramp team to get the pyramid team to
1: complete their task. Oh, Oh, almost certainly. Yeah, absolutely. This was a specialized job. And the same thing applies to everything else that we've talked about with the construction of these of these monuments is not just what gets left behind is but what actually took to get it there in the first place. And when you put that into perspective, it continues to further blow your mind, which is pretty crazy. So, you know, we we wanted to talk about some of the more modern and contemporary constructs, but I, we don't have a whole lot of time left. Well, I think you can you can certainly see them like
0: uh, Mount Rushmore. Yeah. is definitely one of them. Um, you know, which has its own set of controversy for where it was, where it's actually constructed. Um, Sacred Native American mm-hmm. mountain, yeah. And was it built there as a kind of a dig towards them? That's where the controversy lies. Um, there's the Washington Monument, which is you know America's own obelisk, uh, largest obelisk in the world. Mm-hmm. I mean, the great thing is that it, it, they never stopped. Yeah. It wasn't like the ancient world everyone did it and then as soon as modern man walked around they were like, "Ah, we're just going to make skyscrapers." I mean, you could even argue that you know, the skyscrapers that we've built are a modern version of these uh monoliths because they were they are a symbol. I mean, <clears throat> most famously the Twin Towers. Yeah. You know, I mean, for what for what they were what they stood for, I mean, they were near the tallest buildings in America if not the world I think they were um, the
1: tallest buildings in America unless the Sears uh, Sears Tower I think the Sears larger. Tower beat
0: them by like seven feet and that was just because of the radio antenna that they had. oh uh, yeah I hate it when they do that it's yeah. so stupid it's stupid you should never count yeah, that yeah, yeah. Um, no, oh or even uh, in Dubai uh, the large yep. the large uh, I forget the name of the structure but, oh god um, I know what you're talking about yeah Yeah, but it, it, it <laughs> to go film on you guys you can see it in Mission Impossible uh, Ghost <laughs> Protocol um, nerds on film yeah right nerds on film <laughs> Uh, but I mean, like the fact of the matter is is that it never stopped you know, yeah we our our modern monoliths are the buildings that we construct today,
1: yeah and it 'll be interesting to see how they hold up to the test of time because when you 're talking about stone you 're talking about something that, that lasts a really long time, our constructions, like even the Washington monument is the outer portion is the only part that 's even remotely stone. it might even be concrete. Uh, I, I know steel and it's got a steel interior, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, it has a steel framework, so I think it's mostly concrete. But you know, um R- Mount Rushmore obviously that that's that, that one's stone. gonna stand. Yeah. You know, things like uh Statue of Liberty. You Statue know? of Liberty is I, metal, isn't it?
0: Yeah, she's metal, but I mean I, I well, it'd be interesting Copper, to see if she actually, you know uh, how will well she stand?
1: Yeah. I think up until the point where Charleston Heston blows up the world <laughs> is is a safe bet now. I think we've been proven that, right? <laughs> Damn dirty apes. <laughs> Sorry. Get your hands Whoa, off hey, me. Hey, I just went movie for a minute. You did. Whoa, film. you're rubbing off on me. I know. I know. Well, okay, before we before we totally wrap this up, because mm-hmm. we have those modern examples, and we could go into a lot more detail, but we're just kind of running out of time. And we did want to focus on the ancient world and some of its lesser known right. uh, objects. Anyhow, it would be horrible if I did not mention one of the greatest tragedies, uh, in my opinion, in, in the past, what is it now, 13 years. And... This was uh, something that, at the time, had a lot of press and notability around. It would be later outshadowed by the horrible, tragic events of September 11th. But the Taliban are also known to have you know, not just harbored terrorists, but also to have constri- you know, done something very horrible. There are these two absolutely massive, beautifully carved uh, statues of the Buddha. Uh, they were located in Afghanistan. And while they are not, um, they don't really fall into the same vein of what we're talking about, I do want to mention them anyway, even though they're not standalone structures. They're more like Mount Rushmore, and they were carved out of the living rock. And so Mm -hmm. there's like a a niche created around them, but Mm -hmm. the actual images are there. Uh, And these, these beautiful Buddhas of Bamanyan. Uh, were constructed back in the 6th century, and have stood as this testament to the faith that constructed it, and to the beliefs that were behind it, and the pilgrimages that would continue for hundreds and hundreds of years afterwards. Uh, And the the, the Taliban destroyed them. They uh, dug out holes for dynamite, and they threw the dynamite in there, and they they blew them to bits. And, you know, I know it sounds kind of funny being emotional about something that is made out of stone, but, um, you know, it's what it represents. Yeah. And it, it just, oh God, it really just, it, stab, it, it, it stabs me right in the heart because here is something so beautiful, something so significant to who we are as people. It doesn't matter if you're a Buddhist or not. These are absolutely gorgeous images and they were just senselessly and and just viciously destroyed. True act of barbarism. Something that, that Islam does not represent. Mm-hmm. In fact, it was for many years there were these calls to kind of get rid of them or destroy them. And the government that had existed before that, which was an Islamic government, did not want to do that at all. And the people of Afghanistan, the vast majority of them wanted nothing to do with their destruction. So this is not a dig at Islam. In fact, Islam, we've talked about it many times on the show, uh, is a wonderful Beautiful culture, a beautiful religion. There's a lot of great information behind it, mm-hmm. uh, and you know it's something that we will cover, you know, in a future episode when we kind of do more digging into more about the the big religions in the world. But um, the extremists that took over, and there's always extremists for every religion around the world. They were the ones who are responsible for the destruction of these Buddhas, and they would later be the ones who were responsible for the events of September 11th and the the murdering. Uh, of all of those people and uh, you know i don't want to go political here that's not really our thing that's not what we do right no but i can't avoid you know something like this the destruction of this history this 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 just disgusts me uh and these beautiful buddhas that are now gone to us for all of time we will never get them back so learn from this experience let this educate the world You know, if they were going to be gone for a reason, it's because we have learned to respect the history around us. Uh, And if you ever visit Stonehenge and you think it's ever cool to go ahead and, and, you know, tag on it or carve your initials into it or any ancient monument you ever visit in the world, I want you to think back to this moment uh, and think back to that barbarism that went on that destroyed these statues and stop yourself and respect that history because we cannot afford to let things like this happen again. And uh, I'll get off my soapbox now.
0: No, I. Uh, that was a beautiful, beautiful soapbox. It's Just how I feel. Just no, and, I feel. And, and you were absolutely correct. It's not about choosing political sides. It's about the representation of what that act does, and what that what that act means to a history. You know, to just easily destroy something that is a connection to the past. You yeah. know, that would be like us going into Egypt and blowing up the pyramids or blowing up the Sphinx and and more or less erasing everything that was created prior to us. Because without those things, we would not be the society or the culture that we are today. And um, the act of blowing up those Buddhas is just a a really painful, and even the act of 9-11, right? Because if we are going to say that skyscrapers are America's monoliths, you know, and something that represents... You know, America. Those two acts put together are just massive slaps in the face
1: to to every living human being. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And you know, I I will say that the the Buddhas are not an exception. You know, it's not like they're the only beautiful things that have been destroyed in our world. Uh, They're not the only historical monuments that have been torn down and destroyed. We could do a whole episode on on that alone. But they are the most recent example of this on a large scale mm-hmm. uh that is something that we need to learn from yeah. agreed uh david thank you yeah. thank you very much for coming on the show today i know we kind of ended it on a little bit of a uh, sad serious. tone serious, serious, yeah, serious no yeah but i found your input today to be absolutely invaluable thank you so much for coming and joining me you are a fantastic Uh, Fill in for Brian as you always are because you've been on the show before. Yeah. It's not like, you know, we're just on the show a couple of weeks. First time you and I. First time solo. Solo. Yeah. Yeah. And it was a cool experience. Yeah. It Um, was. And uh, I'm glad that Brian is taking some time off to finish his school because it also gives me an opportunity to kind of have these new experiences. And I'm looking forward to working with Sarah one-on-one and also working with Kevin one-on-one. That's going to be um, fun. Of course, we've all been on the show before, but it's, it is it is kind of a different dynamic mm-hmm. when it's just the two of us. Right. Because when it's the three of us or when it's you and Brian and then the guest, yeah. right?
0: You and Brian already have a relationship established. Right. Juxtaposed to you know your guest, right? Now it's a completely different ballgame because now that relationship has to translate to you and this person who's filling in but you know i think it's because we are such a close tight-knit group that oh, yeah. it's just
1: well we're all family you know we, yeah. we all come to each other's recordings anyway so <laughs> well, now that we have the... <laughs> oh, damn it
0: well now that we have the cool nifty new cave now now it's you know it's like it's literally the treehouse i never had so now it's like the home away from home so if things get going rough I'm just like yeah effort I'm just going to come on into the cave and hang out. Yeah.
1: And it it uh it's been so much fun putting this together but my back is freaking killing me man. Yeah. <laughs> this carpet so uh listeners I installed the carpet last night. I just wanted to get it done so I just did it myself. Everyone was you know offering and more than willing to help so don't don't be thinking like uh you know nobody <laughs> the people leaving me to do it all but I just wanted to get it done and over with and uh this carpet damn near killed me. <laughs> <laughs> I think once we get more wall hangings, we will uh, certainly take photos and yeah. uh, post onto the website. Once we once we fully nerdified it and gotten the chair that we want to get in here, the extra chairs that we want to get in here, and then uh, as soon as we have the special light for the special door, we're not telling you what kind of door it is yet. It's going to be amazing. Oh, it's pretty much already done, but uh, we can't wait to make the final touch and then show it to you. Then I think, yeah, we'll definitely have pictures and then you folks will be able to, to see it. However, if you'd like to help make all of this possible, you can be uh, just like some of the individuals who have already contributed to Nerdonomy by heading over to our website and clicking on the donation button that we have set up there. And all the proceeds that you uh, contribute to us will go to Nerdonomy uh, proper and, and getting everything taken care of. So things like equipment we are looking to have a dedicated computer because right now we're just kind of doing this on each other's laptops and it can sometimes be uh, a little bit tricky. Uh, and so uh, having a dedicated computer with all the configurations and settings set up on it would be a huge help to us. Uh, it is summer and the nerd cave sometimes gets a little bit warm. So it'd be nice <laughs> to be able to have an AC unit installed in here. <laughs> we would love to have one of those uh, in addition to expanding our merchandising, which is hopefully going to generate uh Neurotomy again more sustaining revenue so that we can continue to do awesome things and bring you guys awesome recordings so again we need stuff for like sound dampening and other mm-hmm. equipment for all of those purposes we will not take your money and we will not take it to vegas and go you know spin it in a slot machine we're just uh trying to support ourselves because right now we've all been doing it out of pocket exactly so i want to thank all the folks who've uh contributed already hillary and Patricia, thank you very much for your very generous donations. And also, I want to thank—I uh, I know we got an email. I'm not quite sure if it's Jeremy or Lee who mm-hmm. we're thanking here. I have Relief Jeremy for
0: something? Yeah.
1: Yeah, I have Jeremy on, on my list here. But uh, if we get your name wrong, please let us know. I'm sorry about that. But he donated $5.42. A very specific number. Which uh, makes me so happy.
0: <laughs> uh, $0.42 cents because of his love for hitchhiker, uh, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy.
1: Dude, I am a huge— huge adams fan i love the entire hitchhiker series uh eternal uh, tea time of the soul another really great one you just made my day thank you so much <laughs> and then uh five dollars
0: because he is a college student um which is beyond generous we thank you so
1: much for oh, that five dollars is extremely generous and we appreciate that if every one of our listeners gave us one dollar we would have enough to mention all of those things that we talked about just boom instantly. exactly so thank you so much uh to everybody, and we hope that uh, if you have an opportunity, you can uh, dig into your pockets a little bit and help us out here at Nernotomy. We uh, we'd we appreciate it. We thank you in advance. Uh, David, again, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Uh, where can we reach you, David?
0: Of course, you can always email us at uh, our feedback station at www.nernotomy.com. Uh, everybody gets it. Or if you want to personally follow me on Twitter, I am at David C. McGuire. Um, I'm using that more actively now. So uh, you can actually you know, follow that and actually have uh, decent updates.
1: Cool. I am at The Brickmont. I have absolutely no idea if I'm following or not these days. <laughs> I think i update updated every once in a while, but I would still love to, to be followed uh, and uh, I'll follow you back as well. So thank you again, listeners. Um, we will be back next week with guest host Sarah Ashley. And uh, in honor of Brian, Join us next week, same nerd place, same nerd channel. This is Eric Brickmont. This is Dave McGuire. And thank you very much. Good night.